As we jump into 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're going to have a lot to cover, so stick with me. Uh, for those who like history and the storyline, you're going to love this morning. For those who don't, let me just give you the warning right up front. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of some history, a little bit of some catching up. So I got a lot to cover in a short amount of time. I promise I will go quick. You're going to you're like, faster than normal? Um, yeah, a little faster than normal. So breathe. The fire hydrant's coming. We're all going to be fine. Uh, first question I want to ask, though, before we start off, because this is going to dictate everywhere we go this morning. If you had in your photo album at your homes, some kind of pictures in there. If you had five pictures that you would want to describe your legacy, what would they be? Think for a second. Would they involve your kids? Would they involve your job? Would they involve... What what would those pictures look like? What would those five pictures be? If you came at the end of your life and somebody said, I just need five pictures to sum up your life, which is impossible. I get that. So you're like, Joel, that's terrible. That's a horrible game to play. <laughs> Trust me. I know. But if you only had five, what would that look like? What pictures would go in there? And so I want to play this game with the missions trip. And I want to give you five pictures that I think kind of sum up the missions trip that we were just on and give you a little bit of insight into what's happening. And then we're going to look at five pictures from 2 Samuel. So first picture, uh, it looks like all these pictures look like this. Um, <laughs> We're going to get to the middle. Um, the first picture up on the uh, upper right is a group picture. And the reason I chose that one is because this would not happen. You can go to the blow-up picture of that if you want, Michael. That picture would not have happened if it wasn't for relationships. Everybody that was working on that house was either Rock de, Sa- Rock de Salvation or ourselves. And, and everybody came together for one purpose. Two churches, which... Interestingly enough, here's the beauty of what God does. That church plant that we were working with are, are the same age as we are. <laughs> Actually, a little younger. But they're, they're the same struggles, the same issues that we have of a building. And, a, and they just lost a building. And now they had to find a new place to meet. And, and there were some blow-ups in the church that too many in the team heard this. But there were some blow-ups in the church about a member who had a building. And then he got mad and ticked off. And he left. And he's like, I'm taking the building with me. You know, like the kid at fifth, the, you know, little fourth graders. I'm taking my toys with me. That's what he did. And I'm like, ah, welcome to church planting. That's what happened. And so that's kind of the stories behind the relationships. But I feel like if there's any picture that sums up the trip, it's, it's that one. It's everybody together working on this house for one purpose and one purpose only. And so that's a big one. Second one uh, is this, and this is a wall. And a lot of you guys are like, it's a wall. Yeah, but you don't understand. This wall was like the wall, okay? So this wall was abusive because there was probably three or four different ways that this wall could be built. There was probably three or four ways it tried to be built and probably three or four discussions about once it was built, how we're going to rebuild it, okay? So this wall was the bane of our existence. And then they said, hey, what's a great idea is let's put some sheetrock on this wall and then we're all gonna lift the wall and put it into place with sheetrock on it. Now, if you don't know how heavy sheetrock is. It's, 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 it's beastly, all right? So I just said, put it on my back. Let's go. And I just kind of did some squats and I put it right up. No, I didn't. Um, and, and it took all of us to put this wall up. And I thought this was such a beautiful picture. And I think, I'm not sure even who grabbed, there's a couple shots of this, but this was so fitting for us uh, for, the, for how this b- house got built. It was all of us together raising up this house. And I'm telling you, it was every single one of us on that wall going, one, two, three, and lifting that bad boy up. And then it was like, we got to go two inches to the left. We got to go two inches to the right. It's over the pipe. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was like bad words happening in my head all the time. I mean, it was just, it was bad. And, 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 and it was just this major, major theme that once that wall was up, it was up. 
And that was our big accomplishment. It was awesome. And then they realized, and here's the decision they made after this wall. We are never building another house against a brick wall ever again. So for those on the trip, you know that. Uh, They've decided that's never going to happen again because it was just too hard. So that's another picture. Third one is this. Um, I love this picture as well. This is a picture with families. Uh, We got to know uh, a lot of families over dessert. Uh, This was one that one of my daughters said, this is just a great night, Dad. This was just a good night to get to know families. And I thought if there's anything that comes out of the trip, it's that picture. It's just huge. And then I think the third one I thought was a great picture, and that's this one. This was uh, right after we had passed out Bibles, uh, and we were praying over them, and uh, we had passed out, as Amber said, over 200 Bibles uh, into different homes. And so this was just a perfect representation of what happened uh, during the trip and trusting everything over to God. I thought it was just a beautiful reminder of why we do missions, and that was picture number four. And then lastly, picture number five in the middle. Uh, If there's anything that kind of sums up like the attitude of the trip, it's that picture right there. I couldn't find anything better than that one. It's just like the coach who's just, let's go, let's get it done, let's, let's have at it, and uh, the abuses we took uh, just sums it all up. Uh, but it was awesome, and uh, I think that picture is just a determination Honestly, it was the determination of our team that we're going to get this done. I mean, Saturday was a long, stinking day. I mean, we were there in the morning. We didn't get done until probably 8 o'clock at night, 8.30 at night, putting that roof on. But we were bound and determined that roof is going on this thing before we leave tonight. And I was just, there was moments where I'm like, really? Somebody else can probably do this roof. Are we going to do the roof? Okay, we're going to do the roof. And, and we put the full thing together, and it was just awesome. And I think if you had five pictures, those are the ones, personally, I would choose to kind of fit uh, that picture of what's happening. So this morning, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, it's five pictures that are happening in the life of King David. And these five pictures are, are a collage. So don't read 2 Samuel chapter 5 in chronological order. Does that make sense? So this isn't like this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. 2 Samuel chapter Chapter 5 is put together by the narrator as kind of a collage of pictures that kind of dictate the king, uh, G, the king of the king David as he comes into this kingship. And so let me kind of give you some recap as far as where we've come from and where we're going to this morning. So um, one of the best passages I found to sum up the life of David up until this point is actually found in Psalm 78. And it says this, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. We saw that early on. That's the beginning of his life. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. This is great. With an upright heart, he shepherded shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. If there's anything to sum up life of David from, from the time we first saw him to now, it's this. God chose him to shepherd his people, and he's done it with a skillful hand and he's done it with an upright heart. And you see that all the way up until now, David has done the right things. He's been very faithful in what he's done. And up until this point, there's been a lot of stories that have happened. And, and, and Nathan was here last week and talked about the graciousness of David, that he didn't take Saul's life, and he could have, and he didn't. And so we're going to pick up. I want to just go really fast, okay? Really fast from what happened after the cave incident with Saul to where we are now. Good? Okay, here we go. So, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, David becomes a mercenary for the Philistines. The dude gets employed by the enemy to take his enemies out, okay? So the dude's like a special agent, secret agent for the Philistines, and he ends up taking a lot of guys out, kills a lot of people. He's really good at his job. 
chapter 28, Saul gets advice from a medium who summons up dead prophets. That's a whole other chapter. That whole chapter has theologians all over the place as far as what that means. But Saul is basically getting advice from other people that they're not God. Chapter 29, uh, David uh, gets kicked out of his mercenary job by some untrusting Philistine commanders. In other words, the Philistines are like, is this guy truly legit? I don't think he should be a mercenary for us. So they kick him out and David ends up leaving the Philistine camp. Chapter 30, David's families and all of his commanders of families are in a are in a place, and all of a sudden they are leaving the Philistines, they come back to their camp, and the camp is completely burned to the ground, and all of their families, children, wives, livestock, everything has been taken away from them. So David, then in chapter 31, takes action and rescues all of the families that were taken from him in that raid, okay? So that's chapter 31. Also, we find out in chapter 31 that Jonathan, his best friend, is killed in battle, and so we know that that's a hard thing for David. This is the very closest friend of him, and he's all he has left. David uh, knows that Jonathan is now killed. Uh, now it says in verse, 1 Samuel 31, 1 and 2, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilibah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Anadab and Malchi, uh, the sons of Saul. And they took all these sons and they killed them all, and Jonathan is now dead. Also in chapter 31, we also realize that Saul commits suicide. Um, so Saul, at the end of his life, the most sad ending to Saul's life, the guy who was raised up by God, set up as the first king, has, has left this world with the most shameful way of going out in the Israelite culture, and that is committing suicide and doing so by his own hand because his own guy wouldn't take him out. And so now Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead. So then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, David grieves the loss of King Saul and Jonathan and writes this really long poem and this really long song about King Saul and, King, and, and Jonathan, both of which are very, very important. We're not going to have time to get into those, but that's part of chapter 1. Chapter 2, David is made king, but after only being king, he is made king of only one territory. So here's the deal, history number 101. What's happening in the life of Saul is there are 12 tribes in, the, in Israel, and of those 12 tribes, there's one named Judah and then 11 others. All of the tribes are kind of amassed under Saul at the beginning, and they're all kind of dispersed in different locations. And then all of a sudden, uh, David becomes king, but not king of all 12 tribes. He becomes king of Judah. So, so David is now king, but he's only king of one tribe, and there's still 11 that are still faithful to Saul. Make sense? So that's all the nations kind of roaring together. That's all things happening. And so now David is now king, but he's only over king of Judah. And he's king of Judah, this one tribe, for seven years and three months, or six months. It says six, or seven years and six months, or and a half. So basically, it's seven years, six months. He's, he's over the king of Judah, but he's not fully king over everything. Now, during this time, uh, at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel 33 years. We're going to get to that second. At this time, as he's ruling over Judah, uh, another one of Saul's sons named Ishbothath, which is just a really fun name. If you don't have your kid's name picked out yet, Ishbothath should go in because that's a really fun name. A son of Saul is appointed by commander of Saul. And so there's a, there's a couple names you need to know in these remaining chapters. And I'm telling you, this is why David, as a, as a book, should be a, a miniseries. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, this thing would really sell. I mean, the Netflix would really go crazy with this because this is great. So what happens is there's a bunch of names you need to know. Abner is a name you need to know. Joab is a name you need to know. Ishbothath, which is a fun name. He's a name you need to know. And then there's another name we're going to talk about in just a second. So everybody with me? Okay. So as he's over Judah, over the 11, there's Ishbothath. And Ishbothath is over the 11 tribes. As Ishbothath is over the 11 tribes, he's got a commander by the name of Abner. Abner is the commander under Saul. Sticking with me. 
as he's a commander under Saul, he raised up Ishbothat to reign over these 11 tribes. Now, somewhere along the way, <laughs> this is so good, Abner is in battle, and he's in battle with the brother of Joab, whose name is Ashiel. And Ashiel is a track runner. Ashiel is very, very fast, very swift, really long distance cross country runner is Ashiel. And so Joab has a brother named Ashiel, and in battle, Ashiel chases down Abner, which is the commander of Saul's army. We've got that, correct? This means yes. Okay, so Abner is now running from Ashiel, and so much so that he's running and running, and he's weared out because this guy's a cross-country runner, and Abner is not. And as he's running, and as he's running, he's like, dude, just stop hunting me. You gotta stop, because I'm getting tired and winded. If you don't stop, I'm gonna kill you. And he's like, I'm still coming. I'm still coming. And it's a beautiful, fun, it's a fun picture. And he just keeps tracking him down, tracking him down. He's like, I'm tired, I'm tired. And so finally he says, I'm serious. If you don't stop, I'm gonna kill you. And so he, he, as he's coming, Abner takes the sword, and he rams it into Ashiel's stomach, and a shield, the, the sword goes backwards, so it's like the, the stub end first goes all the way through the dude's body and out the other side. This is, you should read your Bible. This is awesome. And it comes out the other side, and he kills Joab's brother, and Joab is ticked off because this happened. Now, fast forward. His brother's dead. Abner's still ruling. Ishbothas is still there. Abner decides, this is not going to go well for me. I need to align all, all the 12 tribes back together. So he comes to David and he says, hey, David, we need to take all the 11 tribes and I'm going to join them with your Judah tribe and we're going to get all of Israel back together again. Abner's trying to make a peace treaty. As Abner's trying to make a peace treaty, treaty, as he's making the peace treaty, he comes out of meeting with David. And as he comes out of meeting with David, here comes Joab. <laughs> and Joab's like, you're the dude who killed my brother. And he's like, I'm just trying to make peace. Joab doesn't have it. He wants nothing to do with it. So Joab, in full mercenary mode, takes out Abner and kills Abner for killing his brother. To which David's like, I've got, I lost complete control of my entire kingdom. This is terrible. And eventually, he doesn't know what to do. As this is happening, just, I'm just telling you, this is why this should be a series. Ishbothath is trying to make things right, but they all hear that Abner's dead, and so they start to get worried. And so there's a mob that forms and some mercenaries that form, and they end up in a coup against Ishbothath, and they kill Ishbothath from his own tribe and his own people. And they take him out because they're worried the peace treaty is not going to go through. That's all seven years, six months worth of, of time frame condensed into a couple chapters. And that's where we pick up now in 2 Samuel chapter 5. All of that to get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, okay? Five pictures, five different things we can look from here, and then we're going to continue on, okay? We still good? That was a lot. Okay. Okay, here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 5. So David has now got all 12 tribes underneath his rule. He is now king over all of Israel. This has is, this not happened since Saul was anointed king. All 12 tribes are back together and David is lord over all of them now. And as he becomes king, he is king uh, to rule at age 38. So if you're to look at his life, 17, age 17 to 20, he was a giant killer and paid musician for Saul. 20 to thir- age 20 to 30, he's on the run. He's a mercenary. He's a crazy guy with spittle on his holy beard. Uh, in age 30 to 37, he's king over Judah. And then around age 38, he is now finally king over the entire nation of Israel. And that's where we find chapter 5 and verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at David Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. 
And the Lord said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over Israel. David was 33 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So if you do the math, it all works out. But this is the beginning of the, this is the beginning of his kingship here. And, and as we see the beginning of his kingship, we realize that this is a long time coming, right? This was what was promised to him at age 17. And I think what David fights here, and he's been fighting for the last upteen years of his life, is an appetite for now. And if we're honest, I think we all have the appetite for now, right? We all have the worries about, well, this week's been hard, and so it's always going to be hard, or why doesn't God answer my prayers? I prayed like three times this week and he still hasn't answered my prayers. Or for some of you, you've been praying for two years for something and it's not happened. Some of you, you've been praying for 10 years and it's not happened. And you wonder, does God even hear me? Is God even aware of what I'm praying? Let David be an example. Let this picture, this first picture of verses one through five and six through 10, let this be a picture for you that David saw, that you can see, that God is on his own time schedule and God does not fail to keep his promises. And you may be asking for things for years and years and years and you wonder why God makes you struggle and you wonder why Christianity is hard. And I, I sometimes wonder if, if we've almost made it too easy in the Christian world. We've just kind of said, just follow Jesus and life will be good. When in reality, when you look through scripture, I can't point to one person in scripture that said, once they accepted Jesus, life was a piece of cake. Once they accepted Christ, everything got easier. Everything was just made simpler. Nothing got more complex. Nothing got harder to do. Whenever I look at scripture, whenever I look at the people in the Bible, there is a lot of suffering. There is a lot of things that we just shake our heads and say, why would God allow that? Why would God allow him to be a mercenary? Why would God use David for the Philistines? Why, why would God allow such things to happen? And the answer is we, we don't fully know, but here's what we do know. That in the appetite for now, we can miss God's plan in the long run. And we can't get caught up in the here and now because if we get caught up in the here and now, we just kind of get our own bubble in our own space and we forget that God is doing things beyond our time frame and beyond what we can understand. David has been promised to be king since age 17. He's not been made king until age 38, somewhere around there. The appetite for now is, is one that we have to fight and we have to see this as a long journey following Jesus together. The appetite for now is hard to battle, but I promise it's worth it in the end when we can see God keeping his promises over the long haul here with, with David. I would say the other one that comes into appetite for now is not just a now as far as like, I've been promised something, I want it, but also in the appetite for now, there can be an appetite for success right? Why, why isn't my big break coming? Maybe some of you have been at your job for a long time and, and you've wondered like, why isn't my break there yet? I've been at this company for X amount of years. I've been working hard. My boss is, you know, uh, but, but at the same time, I feel like I've earned these things that I should have and I should be more successful than I am. And why aren't I further along than what I am? And we have an appetite for success. And that's this next picture that we see in verses six through 10. In verses 6 through 10, it says this, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, 
You will not, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. In other words, they own Jerusalem. They are the inhabitants of Jerusalem. David wants to make Jerusalem the capital. Uh, and as he goes in to make Jerusalem the capital, they start, you know, talking smack to David. And they're like, you can't come in. Um, blind and lame, they could ward you off. Guys that can't see and can't talk and, are, you know, can't handle a sword, they can hold you off. That's how weak you are, David. David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion that is the city of David. And David said on that day, this is David talking smack back. Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. Again, he uses their own terms against them, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milano, from, from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord God of, the God of hosts was with him. Success upon success upon success in this passage. David, who they mocked and treated as nothing, God says, you will not mock and and treat him that way. And they end up taking the city and owning the city uh, that they now call Jerusalem, which is still obviously the capital there now. And so God is doing something back then that is having ramifications for here and now. So again, if your appetite for now is, man, why doesn't God work on my time frame? You got to kind of go back here and be like, well, the dude kind of set up a city like in the Old Testament and it's still there now. So if there's anybody who knows about long suffering and long time commitments, it's kind of God, okay? Uh, And here's a fun fact. Jerusalem will be there, and we will enter into a holy city again, and that holy city will be one that will never be shaken, and that's a whole other time frame that we don't have a time frame on, but that's another part of the story as well. Success upon success, and David has success as he takes this city, and the appetite for success can, can blind you, but David knew this was not because of his work. This is because the Lord of God, the Lord of hosts was with him. Again, the God of hosts is, again, the, the, the name for God of armies was with him, okay? So we see the appetite for now is one picture of David's kingship, and he fights it well for now, and he does really, really good. And then we go into the second picture, and that is that we start to now see an appetite for me, okay? My success, my, my work, my kingdom. It, it can happen to all of us, right? My job, my, my project that I handled, that I knocked out, can really look good for me. My family, my downtime, I just need to be left alone at the house, so why don't you just leave me alone? I've earned this. I've worked hard all week. Don't bother me. I just need me time, myself, an appetite for me, David see this, sees this in verse 11 and 12. And here I'm king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. You see here that this could have been a very easy thing to say as David's getting houses built for him, as his kingdom is getting established, he could have very easily went inward and say, see me, I've earned this. I was a shepherd, I came from nothing, I went from the bottom and now I'm here and, I, and everybody should know that it's about me. David fights it well, it's not all about him. Later in his life, he doesn't do so well with his appetite for me, but for now, he handles it well and he says this is about God and not me. Now, we get into the failings of David in this portrait. So, so far, the portraits are good. David's really done well at fighting the appetite for now. David's done well at the appetite for me. And now we go to where David fails, and that is the appetite for pleasure. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. David would fail miserably in this area of pleasure. And honestly, on Father's Day of all days, it's kind of fitting that David would fail miserably as a father. 
I mean, the dude just straight up was a terrible dad. And when you look at King David, you're like, oh man, he was a heart of God and he was amazing. But if you look at his family, it was a complete disaster. It was a complete wreck. I mean, the guy completely ruined his family. The father who, who uh, was often the absent father, he was very, very uh, absent from a lot of his kids. The father who did not want to say no to his kids. The father who overlooked sin in his kids and in himself. And he says, oh, they're just, they're just be, boys will be boys. You'll hear more about that later. But he says, it's just not a big deal. And he overlooked sin in his family and it came back to bite him. As an absentee father, he suffered. 13 says this, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now that's interesting because 13 paints a picture of 1 Samuel chapter 3. And in 1 Samuel 3, we read that David had many wives with many sons. So in that seven years and six months, this isn't in this passage, but it's in, first, uh, it's in 2 Samuel 3. In that seven years, David had one, two, three, four, five, six wives and one, two, three, four, five, six sons and a daughter. So he had Ammon, which Ammon was going to come in later. He's a whole wreck of a guy. The dude's got issues beyond issues. You'll hear about him later. Uh, you've got Chileab. Uh, you've got Absalom. Absalom's going to come in. If you know the story of David, he's a complete wreck. He's a complete disaster. You have one daughter by the name of Tamar. She has her own story. Um, Adjanus, and I can't pronounce the other ones, Sephtiah and Ithrium, uh, all of those were of different wives. And sometimes the Bible gives us descriptives that we should not emulate. In other words, just because David did it does not mean God is a polygamist. Does that make sense? Just because God says this is what happened doesn't mean that God says this is what should have happened. You're going to see that women become a downfall for David. As a matter of fact, David is not only an absentee father, he's an absentee father of, if my math is correct, a total size of family of 20 sons and one daughter with who knows how many women, okay? So here we read that um, there were sons of Shamoa, Shabab, that's a fun one, Nathan, Solomon, Irbar, Elusha, Nepheg, Jephiah, Aleshma, Aliyah, and Aliphatat. Thank you very much. Um, all of those sons were born in Jerusalem to different wives. Bathsheba had the first four, and then unnamed wives had the rest. And so 20 sons, one daughter. And as fathers go, there are hardly any in the Bible that we could really see as role models, David being the one of the worst. Thanks, Joel. That means you're bet. It means you're doing good. I mean, if you're home and you're in part of your, part of your lives, your kids' lives, you're winning. Okay. However, if you're if you're not dealing with the sin in your home, if you're not being present with your kids, fathers, let me pick on you for a little bit. If you are not being strong in Christ in your family, that's on you. And the Bible is very very clear that when it comes to eternity and when it gets into heaven. He is not going to turn to the youth pastors of the world and say, where were you in that kid's life? He's not going to turn to the pastors and say, where were you in that kid's life? Fully. There's part there. Not fully. When we get to heaven, he is ultimately going to look at the fathers in the room and say, where were you? Did you handle your kids well? Did you point them to Jesus or did you fail them miserably? Did you hold up an example to model or did you ruin it for them? And I'm telling you with strong words, this is hard for me to hear as well. God is telling us as fathers, you don't get a choice on whether you get to play the game of father or not. You just don't. God says, you're it, buddy. 
You're it. So man up. Man up. Take control of your kids. Love them like Jesus loves them. Model Jesus to them in humility and in asking forgiveness of them. And be a man who is willing to raise his kids in Christ. Not like David who was absent and didn't want anything to do with the sins. He just kind of turned a blind eye. It's not a big deal. I'm not going to deal with it. Deal with it. Get your junk together and deal with it with your kids. I love you enough to tell you that. Dads, in the room, this Father's Day, I pray that we are men that our kids would turn to and say, I love my dad because my dad loved Jesus, because my dad pointed me to Jesus, because my dad was imperfect. My dad was messed up. Ask my kids. My dad is messed up. My dad is, woo. Okay, there are days I wonder, really, Jesus? Okay, this is what you're working with? There are days. But I hope at the end of their lives, they can look and say, my dad pointed me to Jesus. My dad never, he didn't get it right all the time, but he pointed me to Jesus and he loves me because Jesus loves me. David, in this small picture, shows us what, is, what happens when we give an appetite for pleasure, when we, when we, when we abstain from, from being the dads we're supposed to be, it ends up terribly. And you're going to read more about that in David's life later. That's picture number four there. And the last picture is this. It's an appetite for recognition. Um, we're not going to read all of 17 to 25 for the sake of time, but in 17 to 25, the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king, and the Philistines go and start to do battle over David. But there's one key here in verse 19 that shows you who's really in charge. And this verse 19 is how David gets it right here at the beginning of his career as king. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I certainly will give the Philistines into your hand. As a king, they were always supposed to ask the king whether they were to go to battle. Saul was messing around with mediums and witches and the whole thing. David says, I will search the Lord and he will tell us what we are to do. And he did so. And as he did so, the recognition didn't fall to David. The recognition fell to God himself. We read in verse 20, And David came to Belprez, I can't pronounce that one, Belprezim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of the place is called Belprezim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. First thing you see is in the recognition of God is God is a leveler. God leveled whatever enemy came before him. It wasn't David, it was God. He went before them and he leveled them like a flood, like a disaster area. He just took out enemies before him for his own glory and his own sake. And then we read secondly in verse 24, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. God is not only a leveler, he is a warrior. God is marching forth in victory in front of David. All David has to do is just follow. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That the Lord your God goes ahead of you in battle and is fighting every single one of them. And yet we get scared all the time. God, are you going to come through? Are you going to come through? I don't know. I don't know. And we start to kind of take the armor on ourselves. We start, I'll I'll fight this one. You're, You're busy. I'll handle this. I'll fight it. I'll fight it. I'll fight it. And God's like, don't do that. Let me fight the battles. It's my battle to fight. Let me be the one to take it on. And he does. And he says he is a leveler. He is a warrior. And this morning, As you look at the photos of David's kingship, we see that he had an appetite for all of these things. And he did well at the appetite for now. He did well at the appetite for me. He failed miserably at the appetite for pleasure. And he's doing okay at the appetite for recognition. 
But ultimately, there's a big question mark in the last, in the last picture, and that is how will this kingship go? Now that he's king over Israel, what kind of king will he be? And that's where we head into the next part of our series. We're going into the second half of David's life as we learn what it means to really be a follower of God this morning. And this morning, as we close, let me just pray for us as men, and especially as fathers this morning, that as we know that God has done great things, as we know that he has gone before us, may we as men follow Jesus well and point our kids to do the same. I want to read a prayer over us as we go into our last song this morning. And this, this was not written by me, uh, but this is a prayer I thought was really, really important when it comes to us as fathers today on Father's Day, especially knowing that David kind of had his own run and it wasn't the most successful. This morning, as you look at the portrait of David, as you look at the portrait of your life, I pray that these portraits would all have Jesus in them because ultimately it's Jesus' name above any other name. Ultimately, it's God as Father and not ourselves. In Adam, God shows us that a Father provides and protects. In Jesus' prayers, he shows us that a Father gives good gifts. In Paul's writing, he tells us a Father who does not provide for his own children is worse than an unbeliever. Russell Moore says this, God everywhere tells us he is seeking to reclaim the marred image of himself in humanity by conforming us to the image of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And as we become Christ-like, we become godly. I pray for us as men and fathers that we would be that as well. Let me pray for us as we close. Psalm 115.3. God, you said that you are in the heavens and you do as you please. You say, remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is no one like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Isaiah 46. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted, Job says in 42. So, Heavenly Father, though things are often random, chaotic, and out of control, nothing could be further from the truth. May we, not always see your, we may not always see your hand, discern your heart, or like your ways, but you alone are God. In these scriptures, three of your children in three different sets of difficult circumstances all affirm the same glorious truth that you are a good, good father working in apparent and not so apparent ways, always engaged, always in control. You were sovereign over King David's challenged rule. You were king over David's crazy family. You were king over David's personal failures. You reigned over Isaiah's difficult ministry and fractured world. You were in control of Job's losses, betrayals, miseries, waiting, health, faith, struggles. Indeed, no purpose of yours can be or will be thwarted, Father. God, grant us to trust you no matter how you choose to work on our situations and write our stories. When you wound us, ultimately it brings healing. When you enrich us, it makes us generous. When you delay, it does not frustrate us, but to consecrate us to bigger purposes you have planned. When you say no, a better yes is coming. Continue to renew our thinking. Gentle our hearts and deepen our worship. Until the day Jesus returns, free us to rest in your faithfulness and rejoice in your sovereignty. Free us to worry less and trust more as you take us deeper into the riches of the gospel. So very amen we pray in Jesus' powerful and loving name.